Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. But this morning, I'd like to think about the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And so let me take you on just a a little journey, okay, to begin with. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open to... uh, The Good News of Yohanan, Gospel of John, chapter 1. And just hang around there for a little bit, okay? And I'm going to flip around, but just to give you an idea. Uh, Eventually, our journey will lead us to Isaiah, chapter 53. I know uh, that uh, some of you who have been following chosen people realize that this is a not just an important chapter to, to us, it's an imp- important chapter to every Jewish believer. Uh, for, for years, I would ask people how many people were influenced for Yeshua by Isaiah 53, how many Jewish people, and, and you'll see what will happen now. I'll, uh, so how many of you were influenced by Isaiah 53 before you became a believer? Raise your hand. Okay, see? Not many. Now, how many of you had your faith strengthened and you were... I, influenced by Isaiah 53 after you became a believer. Okay, now the majority raised their hand. And so I came up with the brilliant conclusion based upon this scientific survey (laughs) that if more people knew about Isaiah 53 ahead of time, maybe more Jewish people would consider Yeshua because most of us do realize Isaiah is Jewish, right? Okay, the book is very Jewish, the Tanakh. And so if he's clearly speaking about Yeshua, then maybe there's, you know, there's something to it. And so we've been doing a campaign uh, on Isaiah 53 through uh, social media, through billboards, and through all sorts of things. And right now it's going on in uh, Hebrew, English, and Spanish. And so we have an Isaiah 53 going on in, uh, in Israel. It's interesting. A lot of the people, sorry, a lot of the people who are involved and engaged with us in Israel uh, are, are in Tel Aviv. So, you know, you would think that, you know, more secular Jewish people wouldn't have an interest in the Bible. Remember, for whatever it's worth, it's still Yeshayahu. It's still a Jewish prophet. And, uh, and even though it's studied in school, of course, in Israel, but a lot of people, particularly in Tel Aviv, are not particularly religious. And so we're getting about 70% of the web responses from Tel Aviv. And we've already sent out 100 Isaiah 53 books in Hebrew to people that have requested it. We have a testimony video on there. Just go to isaiah53.co.il. And uh, if you don't know Hebrew, just uh, enjoy it. You know, you just will not know what's going on. But if you do, 
But if you do know Hebrew, you'll see some really wonderful testimonies and some information. And we've had 2,400 people come to the website and watch the video, which is a testimony of a young Israeli believer. And they've watched the testimony for a minimum of about six minutes each. And so for those of you that understand that about the web, that's a lot of time. And so we're really excited about that. Uh, and so God, God is blessing it. So why Isaiah 53? Well, if you remember, uh, there was a, uh, a, uh, an expectation uh, that the Messiah would come. Now, there was confusion as to what he would do when he came. Most people expected a king, a Davidic king. But there were some people who expected something a little bit different. Maybe a servant. Maybe someone who did something different. Uh, But there was some kind of an expectation. And there was certainly an expectation that we still have today, although most of you don't believe it, that Elijah will come during Passover. How many of you believe Elijah will come during Passover? Okay, see, we have a few. You know, this year, once again, hundreds of thousands of Jewish children will be disappointed. Uh, So give them... Give them some extra afikomengelt because they're going to be, it's a, rough, it's a rough period for the kids. And so uh, there was a prophecy, uh, and actually it was, it was chronologically, it was actually the last piece of information you received from God in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, before what we talk about as the 400 silent years. Okay, but remember, that's what Christians call it. Jewish people don't call it 400 silent years, okay? And so these 400 years between Malachi and the New New Testament. And the last words you heard from Malachi, because as most of you know, the Tanakh ends with 2 Chronicles, the, the Jewish version of it, okay? And so somewhere in the process, probably the early church got hold of it, and uh, it ended with Malachi. And so there's a big difference between what the last book of the Bible is in both the Jewish Tanakh and the non-Jewish or Christian, not, you know, Messianic Bible. It's a Messianic congregation. I get so confused. <laughs> but I'm not confused about this. And so in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, uh, which is the, are the very last verses of the Tanakh. And it reads this, Behold, I'm going to send you Eliyahu the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Close the book. (laughs) So the Tanakh ends with hope. It ends with everybody knowing that this is not the complete story. You see that? And every, every Seder will end with Lashana Habab Yerushalayim. Next year we will be in Jerusalem. Why? Because the Tanakh always looked forward. It looked forward to the coming of the kingdom of God. It it looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. The Tanakh was never an end in itself. And so it's very interesting when you open 
the Brit Hadashah, you open the New Testament, which, of course, being raised in a modern Orthodox home in New York City, I knew was a Gentile secret. And when I found one in a phone booth in the middle of the Redwood Forest in November of 1970, doesn't everybody? When I, when I found it, I read it, and I was absolutely stunned by the fact that Jesus never once celebrated Christmas, not even Easter. I mean, what kind of Christian was he? And so, all of a sudden, I realized that this was a pretty Jewish book. And as I continued uh, reading it, I loved the beginning of Matthew, you know, the generations. And, uh, from, and I, I learned that uh, Jesus was Jewish. And so in the first few chapters of the book of Matthew, let's just talk, say in the Gospels, you have the story of the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. You have the birth narratives. And uh, you also, in Luke, you have a good long story about the birth of uh, Yochanan Hamat Beal, John the Immerser. And, uh, but you have the birth narratives, you have the genealogies, but then the action really begins. Not just with the, with the birth of the Messiah. Uh, the action really begins with this uh, really rough, tough desert prophet stepping up to the platform and announcing that the one whom everybody was waiting for was about to come. In other words, he sort of just picked up. It was almost like 400 years hadn't happened. He just picked up with the end of the book of Malachi and said, okay, let's now continue the story. I'm not the one, but I'm the one who's announcing the one that will come, just like Malachi said. And this one who is to come, whoa, he's special. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons' hearts to the father. And so, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 24, John says, we read, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked and said to him. So there was an inquisition group. Oh, that's a bad word. There was an inquiring group uh, from among the uh, uh, more religious in Jerusalem. They were part of Yad Lachim. That's an inside joke. But anyway, they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing? That goyish word, which actually is not so goyish, because the Gentiles got the idea of baptism from the Jews. You all know that. Okay? Uh, I live in Brooklyn. You know, you want to go to a mikvah, just call me up. I'll, I'll, you know, we got 30 of them within a couple of uh, miles, you know. And so they asked him, they said to him, why are you immersing if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. And it is he who comes after me, the thong of the sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. And then, I mean, it's almost like a Broadway show, you know? And then the scene is set, and the stage is empty, and on walks this Galilean carpenter. And the next day, Yohanan saw Yeshua coming to him, and he said, and here it is, Behold! The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. 
So he is the one who's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the sons and the sons back to the fathers and everybody's heart back to God. And it's not just that he's a prophet. In fact, he's something far different. He's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. What in the world would have been in the mind of those disciples? All Jewish, by the way. Standing on the banks of the, of, the, of the Jordan. We don't know. But this was fixed in John's mind. Later in verses 35 through 37 we read, Again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Yeshua as he walked and he said it again. He said, He nay, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Yeshua. And so John's declaration that the one who was to come, who would be the fulfillment of the entire Jewish hope of the Tanakh, the one who would come would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So imagine the hope of all generations of Jewish people and the nations was the Passover lamb. Well, that certainly gives some importance to Passover, doesn't it? Other people knew it. One of the people uh, who was one of these disciples was Andrew, who was Peter's brother. And uh, later on, Peter, the apostle Peter, uh, would write in 1 Peter 18 through 19. And this is after he had time to think it through. He said, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Messiah. So this whole theme of the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, this theme of the shedding of blood for the remission or the forgiveness of sin, of course, springs right out of the Tanakh, right out of the Old Testament and these Jewish people who are in the new covenant are declaring that some prophecies have been fulfilled. It's interesting that uh, there was this Ethiopian eunuch, and uh, we can debate whether he was Jewish or not. Um, Maybe he was, you know, maybe he was. Uh, But the Ethiopian uh, eunuch uh, just happened to be in Acts chapter 8 in the right place at the right time, reading the right book and the right passage. And as he read through it, he said the scripture he was reading, he was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so the Lamb of God revealed himself to the Ethiopian eunuch as he was reading through the one text in the entire Tanakh which speaks so beautifully of the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. There are other passages that talk potentially about a Lamb of God, but not every chapter in the Bible talks about a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know that Isaiah 53 is the only chapter in the Tanakh that links the death of the Messiah and redemption from sin. If you find another one, let me know. Because I'm really looking for it. 
And so turn in your Bibles now, if you would, to see the beginning of the story in Isaiah chapter 53. And we'll note why this was so important. And I do believe that, for the most part, the whole concept of the Lamb of God comes from this passage. Now, there's a big debate as to where Isaiah 53 begins, because, believe it or not, Isaiah didn't write this with chapters and verses. Okay? It was all on a scroll. Just go to the museum of the book, and you will see that beautiful scroll in the middle. Everybody's seen that, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? You'll see it. You know that's not the real one, right? That's in the vault, okay? Okay, but, but it's nice to see that it's a nice replica, okay? And so there is the scroll of Isaiah. No chapters, no verses. You just got to know your way around, okay? And... So where does Isaiah 53 really begin? Is it in chapter 52, perhaps, uh, verses uh, uh, 13 and following, which I call an executive summary of the chapter, or maybe even earlier? I would suggest to you it starts earlier. So can I show you why? Okay. In chapter 52, verse 7, you know the song. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings what? Good news. Of course, Rabbi Saul later on would translate this into another Greek word, which means gospel. Gospel. Okay? And so how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's only one Hebrew word, but it doesn't just mean good news. It means proclaim or bring good news. Bring good news. So I hope you have beautiful feet this morning. You do not have to show me. But I know, I'm sure you do. So how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. But we don't know what the good news is yet. Keep looking. Who announces peace. Okay, so we know the good news is associated with shalom, wholeness, completeness. Everybody here want peace? Okay, then you want the good news, right? We don't know what it is yet, though. Hang in. And who announces salvation. The Hebrew word to make wide. When you're in a tight spot, you ask God to save you. He makes the back of the cavern wide, so to speak, so that you can get out. He always makes a way out. And so uh, the good news has something to do with peace, having peace. It has to do with salvation. I skipped the, the one before. It brings good news of happiness. So whatever the good news is, it makes you happy, right? Okay, it's the Hebrew word tov which means goodness. It could either be ethical goodness or even sometimes physical goodness so you can, or beauty. So you can actually say that whatever the good news is, it makes you better than you are and makes you beautiful. Okay, so that's pretty good so far. I don't know. Whatever it is, I, I like it. And says to Zion, your God reigns, the Hebrew word for king. So your God reigns. So we all sometimes feel that this world's out of control. I don't know why we'd ever feel that way. Those of you who do not have children do not understand what out of control is, okay? Uh, But no, sometimes the world really feels out of control. A threat from Iran over here, 
a threat from, uh, from this place over here. It's always going to be that way until the Redeemer comes for the second time and establishes his throne. There's always going to be this feeling that there is a degree of chaos, but the good news, if we proclaim it, will remind us and remind those who we proclaim it to that God has not lost control. So we have a God who's actually in control of the seeming chaos of life. And so it is, he is in control. We still don't know what the good news is, though, unfortunately. And then in verse 10, we get a little bit of, a little bit of a taste of Passover, so to speak. Because we read, the prophet says, The Lord has bared his holy arm, his zeroah, his arm. Have you heard that word Zeroah before? Before Should be on your Passover plate, right? Usually it's the shank bone of a lamb. Uh, there are reasons why sometimes it's a chicken bone. It, it's to assert the fact that we don't sacrifice a lamb because if you have a lamb's bone, it implies that some lamb died. We don't have a temple. We can't sacrifice lambs. So some people use a chicken bone and some people even use a vegetable to get further away from the possibility that we may have slain a lamb outside of the temple, which traditionally we're not supposed to do, and we don't do. But the Zoroa, the holy arm, is interesting. Most of the time in Scripture, when it's, when it's used in relationship to God, it speaks of his intervention in human history. So the Lord has bared his Zeroah, his holy Zeroah, to intervene in human history in the sight of Kol HaGoyim, all of the nations. So we immediately learn that whatever the good news is, it's not limited to Jewish people. So this is a universal good news. We know that. That all the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth is a Hebrew idiom for Yenevelt. Do you know where Yenevelt is? Look on a Hasidic map and you'll see Yenevelt. Yenevelt is far away, wherever it is, okay? So uh, it's where the people from Helm live in Yenevelt, okay? So that all the ends of the earth, the coastlands, it's the land of the, uh, it's so far away from Jerusalem, it's where all the Gentiles live, okay? That all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So in other words, whatever this good news is, and however it happens as God bears his holy Zeroah into the middle of human history and transforms humanity... He does it not just for the Jewish people, but for everybody. And you can say, hallelujah, amen. And then I'm going to skip because of time to verse 13. So then we read, Hine, behold, my servant will prosper. So my servant will prosper makes no sense. The Hebrew word eved means slave. You can sanitize it and say it means servant, but it really means slave. It means you lost the farm. Basically, the way to get become a slave and not be in Assyria or someplace like that, the way you lost, when you lose your farm, then you had to indenture yourself to another Israelite who would take care of you. If you like that Israelite, you could drill a hole in your ear and work for that person for seven more years. But it was really hard to get out of debt. It's not like you can get a second job at Starbucks with insurance. 
So, behold, my slave, which really was not easy to get out of, will prosper. And some of your Bibles say act wisely, and uh, if you see me after, I'll explain why, why that mistranslation is there. Okay? So, my servant will prosper. In, everything, in other words, everything this servant of the Lord had, he will get back. My servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. The last time you heard that was in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah was in the throne room of God and in a vision. Yeshayahu saw the Lord high and lifted up and greatly exalted, and his train or his robe filled the temple in this vision. And so now you have a servant who should remain poor, but instead prospers. And instead of laying low in humility, he's high and lifted up and greatly exalted, not making him God, but in a sense comparing him uh, to God. And just as many were astonished at you, my people, verse 14, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. In other words, this servant of the Lord who should have stayed poor and low, prospered and was exalted, but on the way from humility to exaltation, he was marred and scarred, and even the Hebrew implies disfigured on his way. And I do think that Isaiah, um, maybe he wasn't completely clear on it himself, but had Golgotha in mind. And then verse 15, thus he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle many nations. Of course, all of us are now thinking about, you know, water and, uh, and so on. This has nothing to do with water. That, that word for sprinkle is borrowed from the book of Vayikra from Leviticus. And the Hebrew word there for sprinkle is a very usual word. It's the word that related to the sprinkling of sacrificial blood on the altar. And so if you look at it in context, so he will sprinkle many nations. So now we not only have a servant who should have laid low, but instead prospered and was exalted and lifted up, disfigured on the way up. He also functions not only as a servant of the Lord, but as a priest who actually sprinkles atoning blood on who? Again, the Jewish people. Presumably, the nations. And Israel was called to be a what? A light to the nations. Exodus chapter 19. We would be priests for the nations. And so we now see that this servant of the Lord would not be limited to the Jewish people, but would be generously shared with all. <laughs> So he will sprinkle many nations as a priest. Kings will shut up for what they had not been told them. They will see what they had not heard. They will understand. So let me summarize. So we have a servant or a slave who would prosper, who would be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. He would be marred and scarred on the way from humility to exaltation. He would function as a priest, sprinkling like a priest, atoning blood on behalf of the nations of the world. And then the prophet says this, who has believed our message? In other words, who would believe this? 
Well, if I ask you who has believed our message, what would you say? You have, right? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Next question. To you? Again, the saving intervention of the Zoroah in human history. And then Isaiah goes into a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, prophetic portrait of the Messiah. It's almost like he was painting not just in black and white, but he was adding quite a bit of color. If you look at it as a prophetic portrait. He grew up before him like a tender root, like a root out of parched ground. No stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing about this servant of the Lord that was attractive. He was the kind of person you avoided. So he was a leader with no followers. Nobody wanted to be seen near him. In fact, it gets worse. In verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Men hid their face from lepers. So it was almost as if this servant of the Lord would have spiritual leprosy and people would stay away from him. We didn't esteem him. Verse 4 is the transition. Look carefully. Something happened and we don't know what it is. The scales fell off, the eyes were open, the blind now see. We don't know. Maybe it's Zechariah 12:10 and Romans 11:25 all wrapped together in Isaiah 53. But something happens. In verse 4, whoever is singing this servant song, the Jewish people, recognize this. Surely our griefs he bore. So he wasn't suffering for his own disobedience to God. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves thought he was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That word smitten in Hebrew is always associated with leprosy because it it means to make the skin kind of turn purple. And that's where the rabbis in Sanhedrin 98b, where there's a whole list of names for the Messiah, that's where he's called the leprous one because of this, of this word. And so the Jewish people singing the song now realize that everything that we should have received, he received, and everything he received, should have received, we received. We should have been judged, he was judged. He should have been blessed, we were blessed. So there's a direct transfer Accountants, you understand that better than I do. And verse 5, it gets even more. He was pierced through for our transgressions. That's rebellions. Crushed for our, avon is the Hebrew word, iniquities. It means crookedness. Against the straight line of the law, we are all crooks. We're crooked. The chastening for our well-being, shalom, fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Again, everything that he endured, we should have endured. And everything that we received, he should have received. And here's the kicker. And all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And finally, at least we get the first part of the good news. The good news is not a new religion. 
It's not a new philosophy. It's not a new ritual. The good news is all wrapped up in a Jewish person who is the servant of the Lord and God in the flesh. And this servant of the Lord dies to take upon himself the judgment that we should have received. And now we are free from the bondage of sin and death. Pretty Passover, huh? Because the Zoroah shed his blood for us. I love uh, Rabbi Shaul's commentary on Isaiah 53. He has a few of them, by the way. But I love this one. In uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 5.17, he says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we, you and me, might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the good news. When you believe that, that he took your sins and bore them away, well, then you, you have peace. You're happier and more beautiful inside and out. You know God's deliverance. You know he's the king. All the wonderful things that the good news were to bring he has brought to you. The second part of the good news, and I'm not going to go into it in depth, is, begins in verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as an asham, a guilt offering, he will see his seed, his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So I've been waiting to get to the valley to ask some people for advice because I know you're theologically astute. Just look at this rabbi you have here. I mean, you know, the pastor. See? You don't get a gray beard for nothing around here, okay? All right, so here's my question, okay? This verse implies that the servant of the Lord who died is not dead. And again, I'll allot him a portion with the great, divide the booty with the strong. So he's got to be alive. So I've come here for the answer. Is the servant of the Lord dead or is he alive? But Alive. But did he die? And he's alive. How did that happen? And you say you don't believe in Easter, huh? <laughs> Just call it Resurrection Day, whenever it happened. Don't feel you have to... Don't feel you have to wear a funny hat. Okay. The point is, is that this same Messiah, this servant of the Lord, who died for our sins, is the same one who crashed through and conquered death and rose eventually to the right hand of God and one day will return, establish his throne in Yerushalayim and then we will see peace on earth as no human being, political system or any country could ever produce. That's coming. What does Passover look forward to? Whoops. Whoops. Dropping everything. 
at least I have an Ariel, Beth Ariel bulletin. What does Passover look forward to? Passover looks forward to the completion of the story. And the completion of the story isn't a new holiday. The completion of the story is the coming of a person, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah of Israel, the one who loved us so much that he died and rose so that we might live eternally with our Heavenly Father. And he did that for Jewish people and for the whole world. And this morning, my only prayer is that whoever you are, that you really know the good news, that you've come to the point in your life where you've said, I want this in my life. And if you want it, he'll give it to you. (laughs) Wanting it and faith are the same thing. Just trust him. Ask him to save you. Tell him that you believe that he is the Messiah, that he gave his life for you. And invite him to be the Lord of your life. And I promise you, haroset will never taste so good. Okay? Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers. And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.